Well, everybody, welcome to the um, class. This is our CMI School of Christ class, and we're still looking at Romans. In our uh, last class, we dealt with something that, again, I knew would not be something that maybe some of you are familiar with. I knew it would be a little different, and uh, I've gotten some feedback on that and positive, uh, surprisingly. Uh, on what Paul is saying in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 17 and 18 about the sufferings. And there's two different types of sufferings being addressed there. In fact, it is my opinion, this is uh, just my conviction, that the second word really shouldn't be sufferings. It should be something else. Because that word sufferings, again, is... Um, speaking more, uh, it corresponds more with Romans 7 and the motions of sin while we were in the flesh that talks that Paul speaks of at the beginning of Romans 7 and then begins to, I think, clarify what he means by the motions of sin and the fruit unto death that such motions of sin brought about later in Romans 7, through the middle to the end of Romans 7, speaking of his own personal experience under the law, the, the motions, the zealous efforts, the affections, the desires under the law. And they were not bad affections and desires. They were desires toward holiness, toward righteousness, toward being and um, procuring that which the law uh, spoke of or that of which it testified. But the fact is, as Paul said, the law is spiritual, and he is carnal. That goes for all of us. The law is spiritual. We are carnal, sold under sin. That means sold on the auction block of sin. We are slaves to sin. The, the, the law did not testify of men who were in such an imprisonment. The law spoke of a man who could never be brought under such enslavement, a nature that is beyond what the law could hold up uh, judgment against. That is why in Romans chapter 5, he speaks of the fruit of the Spirit and says, against such, there is no law, because that the fruit of the Spirit is not talking about good men doing good things. It's speaking of the only man who is good, and that's Christ Jesus, um, the only perfect life, and that's Christ in you, the fruit of the Spirit. So, that's what we were talking about, and the the sufferings of which Paul was speaking. Let me just go ahead and read verse 18 and 19, because I want to, and we'll read further in a moment, but just to get our minds back, here's our text. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory, again, that is being revealed in us, a spiritual reality that the Things of this present time, the motions, the affections, the zeal under the law, those things are of zero worth when, when put up in contrast, put up beside to judge the worth of which one's of greater worth. I mean, this keeps in with the context of the whole, of the whole uh, scheme of, of the letter to the Romans and especially the parts that we've been talking about. In fact, we went through the whole letter thus far and uh, talked about it. And 
to me, this is in keeping with the same contrast he makes there, how the one is better than the other, same contrast of Hebrews, how the the law and the things of the law, beginning in chapter 1 and 2, making the contrast between the, the Gentiles whom were called sinners and heathen and all kind of things by the Jews, and Paul says, hey, you think you're so good, let's talk about you, and chapter 2 goes into that. And then chapter 3 culminates both and says, whether Jew or Gentile, you're all under the law, condemned to be sinners. There is none righteous, no, not one. Thus necessitating the, the coming of the righteousness that is without the law, the righteousness that no man's effort under that system of righteousness, quote unquote, because it was not the righteousness of men, but it was the righteousness of God who was in another man altogether. It necessitated the, necessitated the coming of that righteous one, that he may be the righteous one and the righteousness of all who believe. And that's, that's chapter 3 of Romans. Now, so going through all of that, I see that contrast being played out here. That the, that the motions of sin, the affections, the desires, the lust, no matter how pure those desires were and the efforts that were brought about. And and it's not really the affections as much as the effort that was based upon those affections, the zealous works, the observances of law, when set up against the glorious truth and substance that Christ is, the spiritual conclusion of those testimonial things, the shadows, then those shadows, those testimonial rudimentary elements, are of no value when put up against the true substance, the very image of the things, as Paul was speaking in Hebrews chapter 8. When those two things are contrasted, it's very easy to see the one that has worth and the one that does not. It's the same thing, again, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 3, where he uh, contrasts, the administration of death and the administration of life, the administration of condemnation and the administration of the spirit, those two things and how the one is greater than the other because the, the one is the testimony, absolutely, but could not affect any internal change. That was the whole thing. Um, and I would ask you to go to the last Sunday session that I taught at uh, the, the Bible Research Center and see that because we dealt with the sufferings in chapter in verse 17, and I don't have time to go back to that, but it will relate to the last one because that suffering was the suffering with Christ. Um, that suffering means the suffering of his death with him, suffering death to the first, suffering death to sin, death to uh, corruption, death to death, the internal death of being under the headship of Adam. We become dead to that death. We become dead to the sin that was holding us and imprisoning us from within when we suffer with him. Just like every other aspect, because of the coining of those phrases by Paul, emphasizing the joint nature of our salvation, what he's implying there, or emphatically stating there, is that without that joining to Christ, without the with, Christ aspect of salvation, nothing is possible. Meaning the suffering with Christ is is describing a suffering 
that was not possible un unless that joining takes place and until that joining took place. Because suffering with Christ has to do about an internal change from death unto life, a suffering of death, his death to sin. Therefore, alive unto God through Christ, another with through Christ Jesus. That suffering to death, which which bring, br brings about an actual internal change that the law and all of its motions and zeal could never bring about. Though that suffering with Christ to sin, to death, that suffering is the only suffering that could bring about the change, therefore the transition from death and the life that was necessary for the law to actually be fulfilled. But again, never to be fulfilled by us. Because that's where the motions of sin become involved, where we get after it and try to do it. It's fulfilled in us, meaning it comes into us imputed and is never achieved by us by works and efforts. Therein is the reason those zealous works are of no worth compared to the person, the life that is being revealed in us, because in that person, in that life, every spiritual gift has been bestowed, and therefore we can call the other as loss and dung. What was gained to us, even in our Gentile mindset that we set up all of these standards of righteousness, all of these codes of conduct, and these moral things that we have to do to be rendered righteous and Christians in the sight of God, and mostly those those standards are set because uh, they want us to be righteous in their eyes and, and in our own. Uh, those things are of no worth, of no value, because they ne never affected a true change internally. And that's why we have to see what we're reading now in these verses to Romans 7, Philippians 3, because he could suffer the loss of these things and had suffered the loss of these things in the reality of the person of Jesus Christ. And so I think this keeps in context these verses, and, and right, rightly so. We have to do that if we're to understand. We can't make something out of it that it's not. Make it mean something that it doesn't. And we're approaching these verses, which are very much misunderstood and misappropriated, misapplied, mistaught um, by most. So Paul is attempting in this to show uh, in Romans uh, here, the Romans 8, uh, 8, 18, that the motions of the law, the observances of those rituals were of no worth. They didn't internally affect man's condition of being in sin. And as Paul would say in Romans 7, even when trying to do that good because there was really no internal activity uh, of spirit, of Christ's presence, then evil is still there. Still still there. Um, you know, like scrubbing, 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 well, the spot's still there. Well, it's because you can't get rid of that spot. That's not a spot you can touch. There's a spot that's only he can touch. <laughs> um, and the grace of God does. So, Man, Paul, during in, in Romans 7, even under the law, doing everything, and as he says in Philippians 3, blamelessly doing it, 
he still remained bound to a body of death that he cried out uh, from de for deliverance from. And so he is saying that those things of that present time, I could say, and I know the word time is, is kairos, a, a season, but I think it's similar enough to, and, and Paul's meaning enough to say, or to say this present moment in time, this present age, this present season of time, um, the time that men are still attempting to find righteousness by the law, they're no worth. They're of no worth, no value at all. So now from that moment on, or with that being stated, Paul is now going further and going to to address, and I hope this little AC is not bothering us here, that he's going to address the sincere expectation or hope of creation, the creation, a creation that's in a state of waiting. Now, the reason that I've emphasized what the sufferings actually mean here in such a way is so that we can understand um, how it relates so perfectly to what he says here. Because, again, men have read these things, taken these things, and made them mean something else. Because of our familiarity with terms and words, right? So we do that, and, and we read creation, and we say the planet. So, you know, all of the different things that's happened, all of the earthquakes and, and, and storms and, you know, whatever, all the things that happened, tsunamis, or, you know. We begin to interpret these verses with those things in view instead of the creation that God himself created for a testimonial purpose. And yes, this natural world was presented and, and created as a, as a testimony. But there was a creation that God called his heaven and his earth that was called Israel. So I believe this leans toward that creation. We're going we're gonna to talk about that a little more today. I hope this hat doesn't affect you. But there, see the light? It's like the glory of God shining in here. I don't know. There's a bright light in, on my head. Uh, uh, I would get a wig, but I'm not. Anyway, he's, he, he now points to a creation in waiting, creation in expectation. But what are they expecting? What is that creation? I say they because it gives you some idea of what I'm talking about. And we'll define that creation. What were they expecting? What was the expectation or waiting? What's the end of their wait? What are they waiting for? Scripture says here, the manifestation of the sons of God. Well, I think we need to read a little further here just to, just to give a little further context. And I don't think I read all of these previous verses, 18 and 19, Romans 8. I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worth to be compared. That's what it basically is. Worthy are of any worth when put up aside. 
beside, because the word compared is not there, but with means something put up beside for a judgment to be made or a contrast. So he's saying these things are not of any worth when they're put up beside the glory that is now being revealed in us. And that's important because of this. The earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. What does that have to do with this that is being revealed in us? What is that expectation of creation or the creation, what they're waiting on, the manifestation, what does that have to do with this that is being revealed in us, which is greater than the thing that we thought was great? Greater than the thing was merely a shadow and a pointer to something of greater worth. What do these things have to do with one another? It's beautiful. This is what we're about to look at. It's such a beautiful thing. And again, the unfortunate thing of it being misinterpreted and misapplied and mistaught has really hurt, I think, hurt the body of Christ because we have been told to push these things off into the far distant or maybe even not-so-distant future. But if you read all of this, you'll see this had a an ex, there's an expectancy in this that is already fulfilled in Christ. And that's what Paul's saying. Because he's wanting them to understand that that reality that is greater than the motions of sin, that reality better and greater than the elemental, elementary and rudimentary things of the law, all the zeal and effort, because it brings the substance, that's the reality being revealed in them, is there is the expectation of this creation and all of the wonderful things that this, real, this realized expectation would bring about, that's what they now have. That's the reality that is present and being revealed. What a... What a that's just good. That's good news. And, and this will become clearer, hopefully, as we go. So to give this a little more context, let's read in verse, um, verse 20 and 21, because the problem is when, when we have read Manifestation of the Sons of God, many people have made such a, just a mess out of that because, again, surprise, we have made man central to that picture so that we can say, the whole creation is waiting on us with bated breath. They're expecting us to prove or to manifest something to them. Well, not really. There was a moment in time where that was true, but we have to, again, clarify who the creation that he's talking about uh, and this, this will and what does it mean, the manifestation of the sons of God? What were they waiting on? What is this manifestation they're waiting on? So, Romans chapter 8, verse 20. For to vanity, and I'm reading this from the Young's Literal Translation. For to vanity was the creation made subject, not of its will, but because of him who did subject it in hope. See, God subjected this creation. The creation did not want it or volunteer for it, but God subjected that creation himself against their will because he had a hope for that creation 
that this subjection would actually facilitate. Here's verse 21. He subjected in hope, verse 21, that also the creation itself shall be set free from the servitude of the corruption to the liberty of the glory of the children of God. Notice all of the definite articles here in the literal translation, especially the corruption, because we're not just talking about corrupt men doing corrupt things. We're speaking of an internal government, a the corruption that's in us, the sin, the death. Talking about something of internal consequence that governs from within, not just some action. There's a servitude to an internal government, and that is a government that was existing when we were born of our mother. And the whole hope in which God subjected this creation to its own vanity, which is important as well, was so that that creation would come to finally enjoy the freedom from that internal corruption to enjoy the liberty of the children or the liberty of the glory of the children. That's important. And especially take it right to the first part of this very chapter, because Paul states this as something that has already happened in his own heart as an individual believer but now he's saying this is the intention of God for all. This is the reason that he subjected an, an entire creation to its own vanity, so that what's happening to me, the freedom from law of sin and death, could actually be enjoyed. How does that happen? I'm dead to it, and thereby, by the same work of his presence, of that union with him, He has bestowed unto me a righteousness of the law fulfilled because the law couldn't do it. And what the law could not do, I'm, I'm in the first four verses of Romans 8, what the law couldn't do, God did in sending his son. There's the sufferings of Christ to put away sin once and for all, to put away the very thing the law working with, it would never work, couldn't bring, couldn't bring about any perfection. It never intended to. The law was weak because of the man it was working with. And there was always that conflict, and the conflict was divinely ordained. It was a divine frustration, ordained of God, so that that law would point you to a life that you now, in such frustration, cried out for knowing the other was not possible. Unless he comes and he come to dwell in you and be made unto you, you have no hope. Who shall deliver me from the body of the dead? That's the cry that the law was designed to instigate. So that the soul in such a bondage to the corruption could now enjoy the liberty of the glory of the sons of God. Now, that inspiration or that expectancy of that creation was divinely inspired because God subjected it in hope 
creation and say, hey, subject us to this so because we, we know that this is the only way. No. They didn't know. They didn't have a clue. God did. He had a hope in the midst of this. Let's read these verses now in the Weist uh, New Testament translation. For the concentrated, this is starting in verse uh, 19, for the concentrated and undivided expectation of the creation is assiduously and patiently awaiting the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not voluntarily, but on account of the one, capital O, who put it under subjection upon the basis of the hope that the creation itself, that is now under subjection, that he subjected, will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. So, deliverance, freedom from corruption, Freedom, liberty, that was the point. Again, Paul's already saying, happening in me, boys. This is what's happened in me. And he's telling them, if you have suffered with Christ, this is what's happened to you. If you come into Christ, because he's already been telling them, guys, if you're in Christ, you're not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. You have been led by the spirit to the goal of God himself. These are the realities he's already been pointing out. He's just telling them again that this that they have is God's divine intention for all along. And this is why he subjected creation to its vanity. Go to Galatians chapter 3, read those verses, 3 and 4, but mostly 3, and see how these things correspond. I have here just a few of those verses, and I think it'll help. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 21 through verse 26. This is King James. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. There it is. Could have given life. That's part of this hope, guys. For it's in that life that this corruption puts on in corruption. So that's in that life that we become free from death and sin. Verse 22, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin. There's part of, again, let's see the, the corresponding things here in these verses. Hath concluded all under sin. What is that? Subjected to vanity. Same thing. Different words, same reality being addressed. So that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So in this promise, he's just said in verse 17, I believe it's 17, that we are joint heirs. There it is, that the promise by faith, we're talking about an inheritance promise to Abraham here might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, that's Abraham's faith realized in Christ, the coming of faith is Christ, we were kept under the law. The word kept under the law also means of subjection. Shut up, subjection, unto the faith that should afterward be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster 
to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. There's part of that, so that they might, this is the hope, they might be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the liberty of the sons of God. Here it is. Bring us, uh, uh, that we should, uh, bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. We're free. For you are all the children of God by faith. He's just said, this is the glory, reality of the children of God. He's spoken to them, we are the children of God, if we have suffered with him and shall be glorified with him. And I, I believe these, if we look at them very closely, not in just a terrible way, I've just tried to explain it. It's easy, I believe, to see how these two segments of Paul's letters are speaking of the same thing, convey the same sense of a divine subjection to vanity and the hope for such subjection, which is the coming of the seed and the life of that seed residing in us and bringing the righteousness into us that the law could never provide to us. <coughs> so, and the vanity addresses in Romans 8 is tied very closely to this being concluded under sin. And we'll return to that. And if you go to Romans 3, you'll see the same thing. The manifestation of the sons of God is not something still anticipated. It is not something still in our future. Now, that statement is going to infuriate a lot of people, especially kingdom, sonship-type people. It's going to infuriate them. But I'm telling you, it's not. It's not still in our future. The creation here spoken of, subjected in hope, was at all points in expectation for the manifestation of the sons of God, for the sons of God to be openly seen, uncovered, made known. Why? Here's the question. Why were they waiting on the sons of God to be disclosed? Which is what that word means, disclosed. Who are the sons of God, or what defines that they are the sons of God? Who is the creature or the creation being addressed here? Because the answer to this will give us a glimpse on why they were anticipating the sons of God being disclosed. And so I think it's obvious within these words. Um, and when we connect to Galatians 3, I think we find that the creature in anticipation refers to primarily Old Covenant Jews, or Jews still under the law. Those under the Mosaic system of law, commandments. Now, if I was asked, do I think it spills over into the Gentile creation who were subject to an internal power of sin? I would say yes, but I think it primarily, in the argument in the context here, while taking in all souls who believe as far as the freedom and liberty, I think primarily he's showing them that what they have is, is eschatologically fulfilled. What they have, let's say this, what they have is the eschatological fulfillment of the expectation of Israel. We'll see that later, too. But I think it is primarily concerning Old Covenant Israel and the Jews being subject by God under the law. There's the subjection. He subjected a creation that he created, by the way, in the midst of all creation. 
He took for himself or created for himself a creation, a people, a heaven and an earth, if you will, as he called so that he may use them as a testimony of one son. Israel is my son. And showing that creation in types and figures, the salvation that he would bring about in Christ. But there was that time frame in their, in their creation, in their time, where they were under such subjection to the law. God did this for a purpose. He didn't do this as punishment. But he did it to ensure that when they <coughs> finally laid hold, <coughs> excuse me, he did it so, not to punish them again, but to ensure that that they would, because that was the intention of the law, to bring them to Christ, but that they would, when they took hold, laid hold on the substance of that hope, the, the hope for the substance for which they were subjected, that they would realize an accomplished righteousness and the liberty of such, a righteousness imputed to them, a righteousness impossible while they were under such a state of enslavement, both internally and outwardly by the law of Moses. <coughs> and I think there's so much so that, Paul, that not, not Paul, but Zechariah in his prophecy. In chapter 9, verse 12, Zechariah says this concerning those people that creation subjected by God. He says, turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee. I believe that the rendering of double is actually the abundance of grace, the abundance of salvation, double. Uh, showing the, the greatness of that which comes, the second. Not the first, but the second. But he calls them prisoners of hope. Why? Because God subjected these people in hope. But they were subjected to their own vanity. We're going to get to that. That's important to this picture. But now, <coughs> let's take that and now let's define who are the sons of God. I think one of the simpler, simpler places to go to do that, there's many, but I always try to simplify it as much for myself. John chapter 1, verse 12, and uh, verse 13. This is previous. John writes that he came to his own, and his own received him not. He's speaking of he came to his own possessions as the heir, and those to whom he came, the Jews, received him not. But, verse 12, but as many as did receive him, to them gave he the power, the ability, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. They believe on his name. That's faith, right? So, the sons of God are here uh, 
defined as those who believe on his name. Not only that, but those who received him, where the others rejected him. The Jews, many of them, rejected. The sons of God are those who did not, but received him. And thus, believed on his name. And there's a... Uh, clarification to come in the next verse. These sons of God are clarified as to their origins. They're not just people who are to uh, come into this unchanged. We're talking about something happens to these people. This is what gives them the true capacity or capability to be, be the sons of God. Look at this. Because which were born not of blood. That takes Jew and Gentile right out of the picture when we're talking about sons of God. Nor the will of the flesh takes the will of man and his assent to this out of the picture. Nor of the will of man, but of God. They're born of God. There's the sons of God. The born of God ones. The one who received him, believed him on his name, and are born of him. Not of man, not natural lineages. This is about a new birth altogether. Now, I think we also read in a place, sons of God here, but I think Paul gives a heartfelt, kind of exposes his heart as a man who was a Jew, a man who did not believe, a man who terrorized those who did believe, but who was finally born of God, a man who finally came to be found in the Beloved, a man who finally realized the end of the expectation of Israel in the person of Christ. And that's why he would say so many times, especially before King Agrippa, their hope, that's who I'm telling them he is. Their hope has come. I'm declaring to them their hope fulfilled. And we we'll, we'll, may get to that moment. But I think in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm reading a lot of verses here. I hope you write it down if you're watching uh, or going along with me here. I think Paul speaks of something concerning what God's done through him toward those who are waiting on the manifestation of the sons of God, those who are in expectation and hoping for that fulfillment that God promised. While they're under subjection to vanity, they're looking for something that will release them from that vanity. And I think Paul realizes what God did with him. And I don't think we can take this and say, yeah, me too. I think this is just exclusively set with Paul and his ministry to the Jew and to the Gentile. His ministry to the, his fellow brethren, the, the, the Jews, that he would 
speak to. Yes, he was called to the Gentiles, absolutely, but he ministered to the Jews as well. I think the whole letter to the Hebrews is written by Paul, and that's part of it. So in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he says, And I think Christ Jesus our Lord, listen to these words, who hath enabled me, for he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, injurious, but I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world, listen, to save sinners, of whom I am chief. How be it? For this cause I obtain mercy. Here's why. That in me first, listen to that, in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth his long suffering for a pattern to them that should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Paul is saying basically, he did this in me first that I would be used by him as a pattern to re that God would show that his long suffering is long suffering and that he has not forgotten the promise that he made, and that he has fulfilled the promise he made unto the intended heirs of salvation, and I'm a partaker of it, in a, in a way, partaker of it first in the light of reality and spiritual significance so that I can declare to them and be in their midst a declaration of the hope of God fulfilled and that he would show mercy to all who would come. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 15. Because we're still, I want to talk about who are these people who are the sons of God that the creation was waiting on. Hebrews chapter 6, 15. And so after he had patiently endured, he, speaking of Abraham, in, obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong comfort or consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. That's who the sons of God are. Those who fled for refuge. Those who fled the system. Those who fled, the, this is again Hebrews, the one against the other, the first and the second, first and the second comes and better than the first. He takes away the first stab, but the second. That's the context of all this. So those who were under that system but have fled by faith, believing in Christ the Messiah, 
for refuge, for true refuge, and we'll talk about that moment in a moment because that's important too. To lay hold of something, what? The hope that was set before us. The hope we have now, not some hope still to be fulfilled. This is the thing. This is the hope God subjected them for. Hope set before us, which hope we have now as the anchor of our soul. The hope that is the anchor, the hope which is the anchor, which is sure and steadfast that entereth into that within the veil, in the heaven itself. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he embodies the hope, the anchor, which are one and the same, and the person of Christ makes them all the same because that's who he is. This is the hope for which God subjected an entire creation. And that has something to do with why that entire creation was waiting on the sons of God to be disclosed. Paul, again, believes himself to be one of the first God used for such a disclosure to those who were waiting under the subjection to vanity. Because he himself was a subject of vanity, but had been made free from such a subjection. And where there was vanity, futility, emptiness as to result, now there's Christ. So, let's look at this for a second, and uh, don't know where are we. Yes. Oh, what? Say. Let's look at the, the, the phrase fled for refuge because this again in Hebrews 6 is important because these this gives some indication of who are the sons of God that they're waiting on. Who have fled for refuge. The word here um, puts us in mind of according to a couple of commentaries and I'll read them here. That it signifies or the uh, I won't read them both. Uh, let's see. Uh, the writer says that this is the, again, this is from the Weiss Word Studies. Um, the others from Jameson Falls, and I'll read some of that too. But the writer says that this encouragement is for those of his readers who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before them. The Greek word meaning to flee for refuge is used in the Septuagint, Deuteronomy chapter 442 of the slayer who killed his neighbor unawares and who, to escape the avenger, flees for refuge to one of the cities of refuge. So here it speaks, in this context, of the sinner fleeing for refuge from the penalty of sin, death, to the high priest who has offered atonement for him and his sin. His only hope is in his high priest. So this is talking about those who are guilty, born guilty. Right under sin and death, under that imprisonment internally, corrupt, condemned, not because of things we've done, but because of a birth that we went through, called natural birth, which subjected us to the headship of Adam, and here, the Jew subjected under the law as well. 
So this speaks of one of, uh, it brings in mind these cities of refuge to which the guilty party who had killed a neighbor unawares or by accident would flee so that he would not be under the threat of being killed by the avenger or the family that he killed would come and take revenge on him. They couldn't get into that city of refuge until he had had a time to sit before the before the community of, of Israel and be judged by the whole of the community. There were cities of refuge. There were actually six cities of refuge. There was Kadesh, Shechem, Hebron, Bezar, uh, Ramoth, and uh, Golan. The six cities of refuge that God had set in the midst of Israel for that very purpose. So when he talks about those who have fled for refuge to lay hold of a hope. This is important. Um, so Paul is referring here, speaking, and uh, again, this is in, you can go to the cities of refuge. There's a part here, Deuteronomy 4, 41 through 43, you read those. And also there's a mention of it in Numbers, I think it's uh, Numbers 35. So Paul is referring here, speaking of those who have come into Christ from the law of Moses, to those who have fled, knowing their guilt, recognizing that they have no hope of life unless they flee to the place of refuge, the person of their refuge. However, the refuge to which we have fled, we have not only received great comfort and consolation in that we have not merely fled as those who are guilty, but we have laid hold of the very hope that God had set before us the very purpose for which God created all things. And the word lay hold is the object of hope. Lay hold upon the, 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 uh, to lay hold of the hope, that word is to lay hold of the object of hope, not have a hope still to be fulfilled, but lay hold of the object of hope. And it's actually in the aorist active tense. That means it's a past occurrence. So this is not still looking one day to lay hold of this hope set before us, this is that we have laid hold of it. When did we do that? When we fled and came to him who is our high priest, the captain of our salvation, the head, the I am, to be found in him having nothing of our own. This is part of what Paul speaks of about holding fast to the head or he, he he repudiates basically those who are under the shadows of the law. And this is the contrast again, those who have and those who haven't. Those still looking at shadows, those who still do the things of the law to find their righteousness. And he says, they're not holding the head. They're not laying hold of the head. From which all the body are supplied. being knit together may increase with the increase of God. This hope that is laying hold of is done by grasping with force, that's what it means, the head, the man, in and whom the whole 
body is fully supplied with the full increase of God. See that? That's the reality that we have in Christ. Those who have believed, those who by faith have received him. That is the, those are the sons of God that creation was waiting on, that that creation in such subjection was waiting on. And this is why the creation was looking for the sons of God to be disclosed. So let's first state why they were not waiting on this manifestation. They were not waiting, and this is the misunderstanding, the misapplication of these words. They were not waiting on a company of believers or a company of sons or a company of people to manifest the glory of God on the earth, demonstrate the power of God in signs and wonders, wonders such as never physically dying, taking over governmental seats, ruling, reigning over demons and spirits in the nation, taking over the seven mountains of influence in the creation. That's not it. This is an extremely narcissistic understanding and misunderstanding of that, but it's prevalent in many, many circles. The creation that was made subject to vanity, we said, are the Jews under the law. And really, all creation under the law. Because the law subjected said that all men were sinners. So creation that was subject to vanity were anticipating, due to a God-given hope, those who would finally lay hold of the object of that hope, to finally seize upon the deliverance, lay hold and take possession of the true object of their hope and thus seize upon the true deliverance from this internal captivity to vanity. They were waiting on such a moment where that was possible and actually taking place where the grace of God would be bestowed and the door would be made ready for those who would come in. That creation was waiting on those who would take possession internally by faith of the full supply of all spiritual blessings, which is entirely supplied in the head himself and through and by the head himself. And I want you to understand this because such a hope of creation does not yet lie in our future, as I said. It lies in the past because what they hope for, what all under that system of vanity, that system of condemnation waited for, has now come. And that creation can be now made free from such vanity, freed and made free from that corruptibility. And I hope other verses are coming in your mind. I'm not going to go take time to cover them. We've covered some in the past. The Greek word that is interpreted vanity here actually means to seek something without actually finding it. Always seeking, never finding it. trying to think of the verse. 
always learning, but never able to come to the truth. That's the same thing. And that, that system of law kept you in that state of vanity, frustration, because you knew there was an end to this, but you never could reach the end by means of the thing you were in. And that's the beautifully divine institution of the law. The, the divine uh, intention of the law was to frustrate your efforts in every, at every turn so that you would know there was something more and that your need was that something more, which is Christ himself. So that that law would, as a schoolmaster, bring you to, the, to its conclusion. Now, if made subject, Romans 8 again, made subject to vanity. Vanity is mateos, which is idle. And that, that brings in a whole different story when you have the man going out to hire workers to come into the vineyard. We talked about it before, the predetermined wage. And he gives every man a penny, no matter what time of the day they came in, said that they were idle. Think here of those under vanity, vanity meaning idle, and look at the man calling them into the vineyard and giving them the, the reward at the end of the day. We won't get into that. It means resultless vanity. It means empty as to result. It means aimless and futile. It describes something that does not measure up to what is intended. That's right. Couldn't in yourself. And that's what Romans 7 talks about. Romans 7, while we were married to the first man, under the law of Moses too, when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth what fruit unto death. That's vanity. That's the result and the produce of vanity. That's the vanity Paul understood under the law to be his condition. Wretched man that I am. How much more shall the, this is Hebrews 9, 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The dead works is vanity. The futility of working, but never producing. Work and work and work, but never any result. This is the emptiness of the result to those under the law. Again, a great amount of labor, but zero positive or spiritual outcome. You remember what Jesus says, and this is why the vanity was there. Because Jesus says this in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit for without me. That means outside of this union with me, the, the vine. You can do nothing. And that is do nothing as to result. And the word depicted the universal issue of vanity or emptiness with regard to results. Again, this is not the absence of effort. Exactly the contrary. It's a multitude of efforts to which is attached a great deal of anticipation. Because you work hard, you expect. But that anticipation of holiness, righteousness, that anticipation was never achieved because it could not be while under that imprisonment. And therein is why that whole creation was groaning, travailing, 
and waiting on a moment in time where there was an opening, a door, a way made. They could lay hold of that which would deliver, deliver them from this vanity, meaning deliver them from the corruption that was in them, the sin that held them bondage internally. They could enjoy the liberty, the freedom of the glory of the sons of God. They were unwilling subjects. This means the Jews were not made slaves on their own accord. God brought in the law of Moses to subject the Jews and encompass them within the realm of vanity. And we can take this even deeper to see within the context of Romans 5. Remember, Paul writes, Wherefore, as by one man sinned into the world, death by sin, death passed upon all men, all have sinned. But unto the law... Sin was not was in the world, but not imputed. Where the, for sin is not imputed, where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Until the law came in, the sin that was always present in men was not exposed as being exceedingly sinful. The law declared the perfection of one righteous man and mankind by that law was always exposed and found woefully wanting when placed up against the pure testimony of a perfect life. And thus the law, although keeping mankind under a garment of grace, wherein God could actually relate to them as son, also exposed and made expressly clear that men were innately sinful and thereby fell short of God's intention. There's the vanity. It exposed. They were made subject to their vanity. You didn't say they were made vain. They were subjected to their vanity. Their emptiness. The lifelessness of man. Again, we can go to Romans 3. I'm not going to do that. Take too much time. 3 through 19. You can read that very, very clearly. It, it says that. So they were subjected in hope. And this is the hope that Paul, knowing himself to be first part, one of the first partakers of this grace, so that he could declare to them. Now, of course, he wouldn't want first to be born again, but he's saying, he used me first. He didn't do them. He used me first as an example of his long suffering so I could go to those and say, listen, guys, this is the reality for which you are working. This is the hope. That's what he's telling these to whom he's writing. In fact, in Acts chapter 26, verse 6, he says, now I stand. He's, he's before Agrippa. Now I stand and I, I am judged for what? The hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our 12 tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. So he's declaring to them the hope that they're still hoping for. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought an incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Because he's declaring the risen Christ as their hope fulfilled. The means by which they who are subjects to their vanity and working and working and working with no result, just over and over and over, can finally be released from that bond and have the liberty of the glory that they fell short of 
but now that glory could be the dwelling in their soul, the glory hoped for, Christ in you. So Acts uh, 28, he says this again, for this cause, therefore, I'm called for you to see you, or I have called for you to see you, and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel, I am bound with the chain. He had received the hoped for thing. He had received the end of this hope that God subjected them, uh, in view of which God subjected this creation. And he was declaring in the midst of that creation the hope fulfilled. And simultaneously, or by reason of that, declaring to them the liberty wherewith they could be made free and enjoy the liberty of the glory of the sons of God. This is the beautiful part. Now, to me, this hope is something that could not be attained by men, but it necessitated a work of God, which is why this hope could only be realized by faith. That's why creation was waiting on the sons of God, because only the sons of God, remember, who are the sons of God? Those that believe in his name, and were born, not of man, but of God. So I believe it's a beautiful picture how he brings Abraham into this in Romans chapter 4 and says this concerning Abraham, being who being beyond hope, upon the basis of hope, believed in order that he might become father of many nations according to that which has been spoken with finality, in this manner will your offspring be. Now, this is the Weiss translation. And not being weak with respect to his faith, he attentively considered his own body permanently dead. See that? He knew he was dead. He knew his body was unable to do anything. He was permanent. He being about 100 years old, also the deadness of Sarah's womb. Moreover, in view of the promise of God, he did not vacillate in the sphere of unbelief between two mutually exclusive expectations, but was strengthened with respect to his faith, giving glory to God, and was fully persuaded that what God promised with finality he was able also to do. Wherefore? It is put down on his account, resulting in righteousness. And I want you to see that in the life of Abraham. And I appreciate uh, how uh, we says it, that who being beyond hope upon the basis of hope still believe. And this tells us a great deal regarding this subjection to emptiness and the desire for the manifestation of the sons of God. Because Abraham understood that there was a hope set before him by God, a promise made. Yeah. He was also equally sure that he was unable and incapable of doing anything to bring it about. He was a prisoner of his own deadness and his own weakness, yet he was also a prisoner of a hope God had given him. So in the midst of the hopelessness of his own incapacity, he was still in prison and his expectation was set upon the hope God had given him. See that? Yet the sons of God are those who have with full persuasion laid hold of what God did by his own power, because only he could do it, bringing about the substance of their hope. 
So I think we can see this in the preceding verses as well. Or the proceeding, the next verses in Romans 4, 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone, namely that it was put on his account, but also for our sake. To whose account it is to be imputed or put to ours who place our faith upon the one who raised Jesus our Lord out from among the dead, who was delivered up because of our transgressions, was raised for our justification. Having therefore, verse 1 of chapter 5, being justified by faith, peace we are having with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also our entrance we have as a permanent possession into this unmerited favor in which we have been permanently placed and rejoice upon the basis, listen to this, same thing being said about Abraham, but now being said of us in, in fulfillment, and rejoice on the, upon the basis of the hope of what? The glory of God. Our rejoicing as those who are now have entrance into this grace wherein we stand, we, by faith, our rejoicing, is that we stand and have laid hold of the hope of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. The hope that a whole creation was waiting on. A hope for which God subjected an entire creation, in which God subjected an entire creation to its own vanity. Because in Christ is the only means by which they are delivered from such vanity and endowed or imputed with such fullness. So, let's go just a little bit further, okay? Romans 28, 21. That also the creation itself shall be set free from the servitude of the corruption to the liberty of the glory of the children of God. Again, from the Young's literal. God did this with an intention, an expectation being that the creation would be set free. And ultimately, the intention and expectation was liberty. For the creation that was under such corruption, vanity, death, sin, the sons that were anticipated are those who have now laid hold of that liberty from corruption and death. Again, what Paul says he has himself laid hold of by faith. And in that, he has been set free from the body of death. He has been made free from the law of sin and death. He is in the liberty of this reality, partaking of a righteousness of the law, fulfilled. <coughs> Same thing he says in Romans 6 to, the, to those who are believing. He says in verse 18 of Romans 6, being then made free from sin, you have become the servants of righteousness. And then in verse 20 of that same chapter through verse 22, he says, for when you were the servants of sin, For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. The servitude to the one makes you free from the other because you can't serve two at the same time. What fruit had you then in those things? That's speaking of vanity. You had no fruit. 
whereof you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. Why? Because the source is death. But now being made free from sin and become the servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. He's already declared to them this reality. He's just speaking of it in a different way because he's showing them the eschatological implications of this, that this was God's intention throughout the whole age of testimony, the whole reason the law was given. Although it subjected men to vanity, there was a hope involved, and it was so that they would be made free and enjoy a, a, a salvation without sin and corruption and death attached to it, and they would have their fruit already, already realized through being found in the one who is the fruitful vine. So, we could go on here. Galatians chapter 4, 31, Brethren, we are not the children of the bond man, or the bond man, bond woman, but of the free. Contrast here. Again, same contrast being made in Romans 8 here. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. And do not be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. The free are those who are the children of the free woman, those who are born again, not of the not of the will of man or flesh, but of God. This is also the liberty that Paul says that, that those Judaizers came to spy out, that they might bring us back into the bondage of the law. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, it speaks of this very same thing because he says, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither the corruption inherit incorruption. There has to be a liberty. So it goes on and says in verse 53, because I'm telling you, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians speaks of salvation. We call it resurrection, but it's salvation. It speaks of being found in him, being raised with him, being found in the risen one, the second man who is the Lord from heaven. The transition from Adam, who is of the flesh, fleshly, and the second man, who is the Lord from heaven. This is the victory here. This is the deliverance that creation was subjected unto. This corruption must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when the corrupts, corruption or the corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Listen to these words, all you who want to put this in the future. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And the sting of death is what? Sin, and the strength of sin is what? The law. Why, if this was still dispensationalized for us, would he bring the law in? No, this has to do with the transition from the law under which they were subjected to vanity and corruption, but in order that they may come to be found in the second man, thus be born again, and thus put on incorruptibility, and thus be freed from the law of sin and death. And the sting of death is sin, so you're free from death, you're free from sin, and therefore you're free from the law that bound you, because you're free from the internal bondage of sin and death. So he goes on in verse 57 and says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the realm of this liberty. 
the realm of this liberty talked about by Paul in Romans 8 is, is very important. Into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. This is not glorious children of God, no. This is the glorious liberty, but it's actually the glory of the liberty. The liberty of the glory, sorry, of the sons of God. And I'll end this by quoting John Gill, his commentary of this. Into the glorious liberty of the children of God, which designs the liberty of grace, that the children of God have, and which consists in a freedom from the dominion of sin, from the law, and bondage of it, in the free use of gospel ordinances, the gospel, salvation, basically, is what he means by this. In liberty of access to God and a freedom from fear of death and a glorious liberty it is. So this is not something yet to be. This is not something creation is still waiting on, being the trees and the stars. Not even us. Paul's point is, what we have, Christ in us, is this glorious reality. And that moment in time that Paul's writing, and he's talking about, and he's, he's the one presenting this to that with those who are waiting on such a thing to actually finally be possible, finally be possible, and the provision uh, provided or uh, provision offered to them to come and partake of this liberty from corruption, this remedy to vanity. is Christ himself. Salvation, by which we are made dead to sin and alive unto God. That we are brought from flesh to spirit. That we are dead to the law of sin and death and are found in him, having nothing of our own. There's the liberty. Stand fast, therefore, in this liberty, wherewith Christ has made you free. That's the whole point Paul is making. Again, Verses that have been so misunderstood and mis mistaught. I hope made sense. You might want to listen to this again. I know uh, it can a lot of things can be said at once. For those of you who want to hear this uh, in more of an audio form, then you can go to the Satisfied God podcast and uh, the last podcast that's up. the The most recent one is uh, about this. And it's called the prisoners of hope and the manifestation of the sons of God. So I hope this has helped. I hope this has uh, been a means of encouragement to you. Hopefully. And um, thank you guys so much for listening again. Remember um, if you have any questions, you can contact me at ravenbird at gmail.com. Um, And I'd be glad to enter into whatever conversation, answer whatever questions, and try to clarify some things if uh, it wasn't clear in this session or any other session you listen to. So thanks again for being with us, guys. Appreciate it very much. Amen.